Hi, everybody. Welcome to Mormonish. I'm Rebecca. And I'm Landon. And here we are with another collaborative episode with our favorite person, the Backyard Professor. We are diving into each of the Gospel Topics essays one by one, giving it a scholarly and sometimes humorous treatment. We use this book as our guide, the LDS Gospel Topics series, a scholarly engagement as we work our way through the essays. And this episode is on the Book of Mormon Translation. This was a very interesting episode, wasn't it, Landon? Yeah, it was a real hat trick. <laughs> <laughs> he said it, he went there, <laughs> but it's true. We do go into all the different versions of how did he translate these? Because there's a lot of back and forth. If you grew up in the era of Landon and I grew up in, there was a totally different story than what people are getting today. So we kind of go into all that and how that sort of evolved over time. So I think you're going to find this extremely interesting. Again, this is our collaborative effort with the B Backyard Professor BYP. I hope you guys enjoy. Thanks. Hey, Mormonisha, what's with the gimmicky hat there, young man? Oh, I'm just wearing this for uh, effect, I guess, tonight. We're going to be talking about the translation of the Book of Mormon. So what says translation of the Book of Mormon more than a top hat? <laughs> Ooh, I hope you got the stone or the rock. Oh, I've got the stones to go with it. <laughs> He's got the stones to go. Oh, my God. We are off to a great start already. video of you guys with yeah, the, the stones. See, right there. There you go. With the and I, I have my crystal ball tonight. So well, I've really got my Spencer W. Kimball magnifying glass. Yeah, the, these even that. work. See, you can put it in there and go, Carrie is going to go on a rant. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> what? That is impossible. I never go on a rant. How dare you try to visualize something like that? I'm going to throw the Book of Mormon just for that. I see it too. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, see, I, guess, <laughs> I guess you have the, the true prophecy. So, okay. Hey, uh, we are really excited to bring to you, our audience, this incredible information. But before we do, on the church essay on the translation of the Book of Mormon, <clears throat> we recognize now, we've been talking for the last hour or so behind the scenes, uh, Mormonish has produced a video with a Book of Mormon scholar just in the last day or two, and it is causing consternation, decimation, and ululation, depending on who you are in the audience. You guys want to tell us just a little bit about that video, which is going to dovetail very nicely in with our video tonight. I think so too. I'm hoping um, that our guest, whose name is Dr. John Lundwall, will actually pop into the chat. He said he was going to try to watch because he loves your show. Um, yep. But it is an episode. He is... Um, it basically talks about literary constructs in all of the Americas, not just Mesoamerica, and the civilization that would be needed to produce something like the Book of Mormon. And he just literally dismantles the whole thing. It's a lengthy episode. It's over two hours long. It's a scholarly mm -hmm. episode, but it it's it has just blown everything out of the water for Mormonish. Uh, we got so many positive comments um, at the beginning. Then it seemed like the apologists discover it. And now we're getting comments like, what would you say, Landon? You guys suck. <laughs> You're horrible. The Book of Mormon is true. Yeah. True, true. 
<laughs> yes, you guys are idiots. Yeah, we're now getting those kind of comments. So that tells me that we're sort of onto something. So if anybody would like to check it out, um, it's our most recent episode with the wonderful uh, Dr. John Lundwall. And I think Carrie's going to have him on too, because this research is just extremely yeah. interesting and innovative and different. And, and he's already said he's going to come on. I know some of you have said, I want to hear points three, four, and five. And he's told us that he's going to, he's going to work on those and get those ready so we can put those yep. out as well. So It's exciting. Yep. Even Doug Vincent recognizes, even though he's not a scholar either, so none of us are, <laughs> the whole text of the Book of Mormon is anachronistic in the most fundamental That's way. That's it. There That's it. The Book of Mormon itself is the biggest evidence against the Book of Mormon. Ironically, wrap your brain around that. <laughs> Barry Richens is in the the audience. Awesome. Don Smith, welcome. William Charles, you were first. I will recognize you all officially. Tom Miller, Dan Vogel, the man, Dan the man. Newton Lemos, good to see you again. When Wanda Anthony, I saw Don Smith, who Mark Crispin. Yeah, or or we could for tonight's episode we could really shake up everyone including the apologists and say yeah book of mormon no that doesn't go <laughs> forget it never mind i didn't say that mosia yeah steve boland good to see you anyway all of the joe walker daisy b good to see you Tim Rathbone, he's always here. Tim Rathbone is so awesome. I'm just saying, don't tell him I said that. It'll swell his already fat head, but he'll get over it, I'm sure. And then <laughs> let's see, I'm missing two people, Rebecca Biblioteca and Landon Brophy in the chat. So <laughs> would you guys mind staying out of the chat and just come onto the screen here? Woo so Can I just say that I, I love to be on the show, Carrie, but I do miss the chat when I'm on because I have so much fun over there and I can't back and forth. So I do. I miss it. <laughs> my, my chat group, I mean, I, I know I know this is going to oh. come across me sounding biased, but my chat group is one of the very stellar chat groups in all of YouTube land. So there's a shout out to everybody in the chat. So we have a lot of fun. So, oh, Radio Free Mormon. Did he show up? Yes. Yes, the dress code is formal. Absolutely. I was going to put on my black tux, but, you know, it's 101 here, and I'm just cooking to death. So anyway, okay, so let's, uh, let's realize one thing, and then I'll let you guys get started. The entire Mormon religion hangs on tithing. Or, I mean, uh, I mean, uh, the Book of Abraham. No, no, I mean, uh, the SEC rule. No, no, that's not it. Not the SEC ruling. What is it? What is it? the Joseph Smith translation of the Bible? Nope, that's not it. Uh, changing the DNC revelation. Nope, that's not it. Treasure digging. Ooh, wait. Now we're getting warmer. Yeah, baby. Book of Mormon translation. Why is this such a big deal? Because Joseph Smith said it's not for the world to know about the particulars of the Book of Mormon and how it was translated, that part of it. Just read the text. But he never had the prophetic insight to see today and how his entire story is dismantled. And that's what we want to talk about tonight. So, Lady and gentlemen, and men and brethren and sister of the audience and the chat group, 
let's get going. Give us the goods on this Book of Mormon translation, you guys. All right. Uh, I think I think everyone uh, that's that's post Mormon has already heard the rock in the hat and knows about the rock in the hat and the translation process. Uh, even though it is now being argued among some of the LDS people after it, it didn't happen, then it did happen. Now we're back that it didn't happen. Uh, but uh, so we wanted to just bring out some things today. You know, we can talk tight translation, loose translation, all of that stuff. But we just wanted to kind of have fun with this one and and uh, talk about some of the fun things that happened in the translation of the Book of Mormon. Maven's story, in the house. Sorry to interrupt you. Maven's uh, in the Maven. house. Maven, all right. <laughs> Maven, baby. And Gail Capson's here. Gail, good to see you again. And Jail Planet Jane. And Mortensen, Lee Mortensen. Sorry, I'm in a, I'm sorry. I just, I love my chat. No. Anyway, it's all Maybe good. we should all just move to the chat. Forget the show. Let's just chat. What do you think? <laughs> I have done that before, and it goes over very, very well. It really does. But this is a good topic. Maybe we can chat after you guys share some of these phenomenal ideas. So. Yeah, and as Don said, a loose translation is a is a tragedy. Yeah, that was John Lundwell's yep. uh, argument yep. for the Book of Mormon. And, and oh, an act of violence, it. remember? Yeah. yeah. Wow. John just joined Intense. us. John is in the oh, chat. Good. Oh, good. We've been talking about you, John. Welcome. Yep. We are not worthy, and yet you are here. Thank you, good buddy. Yes. Uh, we were just talking about that. Oh, he loves your hat, Landon. Yeah. Let's yeah, yeah. him up there for proof he was here. Unlike uh, Joseph Smith and the Angel Moroni, so there we go. Oh, we can get there for sure. <laughs> so, yeah, if, if you want to see tight and loose translation of the Book of Mormon, watch the Mormonish episode with John because he covers that pretty pretty well, and that's that's why we thought uh, that was a really good. Uh, uh, his words on it were really, really good. So we decided we were just going to take this and we're going to read through the essay on the translation. It's again, it's not, it's not long, but it's not one of the shorter ones. So uh, it's got some places There's some places it gets a little weird, but there's, there's a lot of things in this essay <laughs> that just stand out that you just got to go, Oh, wait up, wait up. Uh, what is that? So, so let's get started. Carrie, you want to pull up the first slide and uh, uh, it is. Yep. Uh, Rebecca, is that one you can read? Um, no, let's let someone else read. I was out in the sun all day. I have oh. like sun blindness. Sun blindness. <laughs> hey, Newton wants to know if you're going to translate anything in that hat tonight. I predict Ooh. yes. Yeah, I, we'll see. We'll see what I come up with here as we get going through. So um, there's several there's several translations we want to talk about, but. Uh, we all know this. We'll start out. Joseph Smith said the Book of Mormon was the most correct of any book on earth and the keystone of our religion. And a man would get nearer to God by abiding by its precepts than by any other book. The Book of Mormon came into the world through a series of miraculous events. And it certainly did. Also, a bunch of really weird events as well. And we're going to show that. <laughs> that, well. that the church hid until just recently, by the way. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Much this one, I really like this statement. Much can be known about the coming forth of the English text of the Book of Mormon through a careful study of statements made by Joseph Smith, his scribes, and others closely associated with the translation of the Book of Mormon. One thing you find as you start studying this is the statements are so confusing and so contradictory <laughs> to each other that uh, really not much can be learned that they're sitting there arguing whether it was translated by a hat or by a breastplate or through 
a loose translation or a tight translation goggles yeah it's like <laughs> we don't know how he translated it every every eyewitness gives a different scenario of oh i saw this i experienced this and yet they all contradict each other so uh that's the thing that we can see uh, uh most in the book of mormon so uh, let's go to the next slide carrie you want to read that one, Carrie? There's the important one. By the yep. gift and power of God. I used to think this was always so impressive, but now notice how vague it is. It doesn't say a thing. Joseph Smith reported that on the evening of September 21st, 1823, while he prayed in the upper room of the Salt Lake Temple, oh no, of his <laughs> log home in Palmyra, New York, an angel who called himself Moroni appeared and told Joseph that God had a work for you to do. He informed Joseph that there was a book deposited written upon gold plates, giving an account of the former inhabitants of this continent and the source from whence they sprang. The book could be found in a hill not far from the Smith family farm. This, has no this was no ordinary history, for it contained the fullness of the everlasting gospel as and i can't see the bottom part oh um delivered by the savior so as uh, delivered by the savior hold Landon on Landon has the essay memorized that's right that's right <laughs> <laughs> no i actually looked in my hat to see that uh, <laughs> there you go see translated reformed english back into english that's right that, that's right this is lawyer lawyer church lawyer english into uh back into what it really means uh so uh, this is this is actually uh, first thing you notice is they called it a history, which remember we just yeah. recently they're now saying eh, it's not really a history. It's more of a spiritual book. But now they're saying it's no ordinary history. Uh, right. So it's certainly a, a, a history. They're, they're claiming it's a history. Even in their in their essay, they're claiming that this is a historical document. But the I, I, I want to respond real quick to John. John Lundwall has a question. Could someone create an AI image of Joseph Smith translating whilst wearing a hat, cape, and goggles? John, if you'll come on to my show, I'll make that image for you. Because, because <laughs> there I, it is. There you go. So back on track. Sorry to interrupt no you. No problem. No. And, and we've got to accommodate John. Gary, or John, before you agree to that, let us show you what he did to us. <laughs> yeah. They yeah. haven't stopped coming back since. <laughs> I roasted and toasted you in my own backyard with that's, a barbecue. Right. <laughs> we we want to talk. We want to focus on that September twenty first, eighteen twenty three visit, though. This visit in September twenty first, eighteen twenty three is is glossed over here. Uh, you know that they're just saying when it happened, but there is so much important stuff that happened with that is related to that September twenty first date. First off, we all know that the first vision story wasn't written until 1832. Um, and so it, it appears really that nobody at the, in the early church knew anything about the first vision. It seems almost like this angelic vision is the first vision. It's the first mm -hmm. time we really hear of Joseph meeting with anyone. And we don't know when the first vision was. He just says it's spring of 1820, but he never gives us a date. He can't tell us any specifics about it. But this angel visit is very specific, and he tells us exactly what the date is. Ooh. And then they go back for five years. They, this date becomes important. So why was this date so important, uh, and, and why 
why does it play into this? And the reason, and Doug, Doug's kind of answered it, it's an important date in folk magic. It's an important date probably just about everywhere because it's the fall equinox. It's when the sun is, you know, right at, the, at, a, at a place that uh, astrology, people who are into astrology, that's, that's an important date. And not only is it the fall equinox, but it's also uh, Jupiter was in retrograde. It, it had all of these signs that Joseph my Smith. My son's birthday. It's, it's, it's your birthday? son's birthday. It's, it's his my son's birthday. birthday. Well, there you have it. There you have it. The so age of Aquarius. That's got to mean something. I'm just saying. It's got to mean something. got to mean something. That means the two-thirds seal portion might be coming my way before I pass on <laughs> into the nether eternities. So. Well, Keep well, that hat. We might be working together, pal. There you go. Can you pull up the next slide, Carrie? Absolutely. Remember, we are being strictly uh, scholarly. Yeah. That's oh. that's right. So this is the angelic visit that happened in September 21st, 1823. You want to go to the next one as well? Yes. Yep. I should have had that one on last. Here we go. So this this is important, and, and a lot of this comes out of D. Michael Quinn's uh a book on uh, Mormon, uh, Mormonism and the magic early Mormonism and the magic world view. And the magic world view. And Dan Vogel has a video on this. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. There's a lot it's of scholars who hit this. Thousand views. Yeah. But remember, he's not a scholar either. They say. That's right. <laughs> None of us are scholars. Nope. It's unfortunate. But but the key thing is, uh, you know, I don't. A, a lot of people don't know, but Joseph Smith and his family was very deeply involved in folk magic. And we know that they had these laymans. They actually had three laymans. Uh, Jehovah, Jehovah, Jehovah was one. One was called Holiness to the Lord, and the other was called Saint Peter or something or other. I, I can't remember something about. And Saint the other Peter. one had a brother named Lemuel. Yes, he did. Yes, he did. Uh, but th this layman uh, is is important because basically the layman was uh, developed just probably in September. And the layman lays out when the best time for treasure hunting is and when the treasure angels, the best time to contact the treasure angel. And that just happens to be September 21st, 1823. Coincidence. It's, it's kind of every September, but all the lines, everything lined up. So Joseph, when he went in and supposedly was in his room looking, you know, praying or whatever he was doing, waiting for this angel to come, he was looking for a treasure angel all along. This was not a surprise visit. He was expecting an angel to show up to show him where he could find a treasure as part of the treasure digging he'd been doing with his hat and with his seer stone. And he was ex fully expecting an angel to show up and, and to, to help him. In fact, some of the things that I read said that he was actually on a treasure dig on the Hill Camorra the day that this happened. And then he came back at night and was looking for the sign for the treasure angel to help him find a treasure. Fascinating so, insight. That I've never had that connection before. Very interesting. But yeah, yeah once once you realize he was looking for this, this isn't something that just happened. But we never hear that in the church, and they 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 just gloss right over this in the in the uh, essay. Mm -hmm. And you see here that we know it was the most uh, propitious time for a divine visitation was during a full moon as the autumnal equinox on a day ruled by Jupiter which was Joseph Smith's ruling planet uh, in astrology, starting at about 11 p.m. And so this is the, the angels' visits and the number of times the angels came, he visited him three times. That's all folk magic for that. That's how a, a, an angel, he's going to visit you throughout the night. 
And the story lines up perfectly with what a treasure angel would be doing to come and show you where you're going to find a treasure. Oliver Cowdery tells us that Joseph began praying earnestly to commune with some kind of messenger. So he was, this wasn't just someone who came in his house. He was looking for this messenger to come and, and uh, give him this. And like I said, the messenger. He was, I would say he was summoning the treasure guardian or the treasure that, angel. Yeah. That's and that's very different from praying fervently or hoping or reaching out to God. This is summoning in a folk magic occult way and taking steps to make sure that somebody visited him. Absolutely. Yep. Uh, and and the layman had sills on it that that uh, that basically were supposed to bring jewels and riches. Um, so when you take this in it, that he's got a layman that he's looking at it, he's working with his family. His whole family's involved in treasure treasure digging. This is the most uh, the night when all the signs are supposed to come, and he goes to his room and he's supposed to see a, a treasure angel. And the next day he comes down, you know, and oh, an angel visited me all night. And there's a treasure. What do you know? And he told me where to go get it. You no longer have to sacrifice the dog. The, the dog. Well, That's we right. still have to dig it up, I think. Uh, yeah. Yeah, that comes later. Did anyone find it ironic that, it, and I know they make fun of this in Book of Mormon, the musical, the angel said, oh, it's literally in your backyard, Joseph. It's right there. I mean, how convenient, I have to say. It's, it's right on the hill you've been looking for. It's it. right there. Oh, this is the hill you're looking for. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> this is the angel you've been waiting for. That's uh, right. So, and a, a, a treasure angel, what a treasure angel was, was usually when it, the traditions in folk magic is when you'd bury a treasure, like a pirate would bury a treasure, they'd then kill one of the crew members mm -hmm. and throw it in there with him. And then that crew member's job was to protect the, the, the treasure so that People looking for it couldn't find it, but the way you found it was with seer, a seer with a hat and a stone would be looking and finding and telling the crew where this, where to dig, and where, and then that it always seemed to slip away right at the end, you know. And this is exactly what starts happening to Joseph is he's he knows where this treasure is, but he's not allowed to get to it. And so for the next five years, it's almost comic when you start reading the story of what happened over the next five years uh, to, to get to this. And, and one other thing to add is some of the records uh, when this angel comes uh, on September 21st, 1823, actually call him Nephi, not right. Moroni. And so uh, we get two different names for the angel who showed a up. A mere quibble, a mere quibble. It doesn't Look, yeah. I may attribute that to the no problem with the scribe. Right. They both ended is what in they a say. Okay, I, it's close enough. Close enough, yeah. So somebody, it's a scribal both, error. Yeah, and they're both in the treasure book. That's right. But so it doesn't really matter, you know, who, who this uh, angel is. But but this story, this night when he comes, seems to go throughout the early Mormon history as the vision. Whenever Brigham yeah. Young talks about Joseph he always talks about the angel that he visited with. It's almost like Brigham Young didn't know anything about the first vision. He seemed to know more about the, the angel visit than about the first vision. And a lot of people, when you start reading the early Mormon tracts, they talk about an angel visiting. They don't talk about God or, or anyone else visiting sure. uh, Joseph Smith. So that's, that's an important thing to keep in mind. So I want to talk about what happened. Not the priest did either. Exactly. No. 
Yeah, that came a lot later. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, Everything's yeah, retrofitted. I'm just saying there's a lot of stuff that a lot of people just didn't hear about until it was convenient to elevate Joseph Smith's charisma. Thank you, Dan Vogel, for pointing that out. So, yeah. Absolutely, yep. So this visits in 1823. He gets the plates in 1827. So let's let's talk about what happened in this time period for him to get the plates. You want you want to go to the next slide? You bet. Okay. Uh, first thing we know is in 1823 he goes to find the plates, and he's he's able to bury he's able to um, find them. But when he goes to touch them, he gets he gets uh, either a shock or there, but when he opens it, there's a toad in there. And this toad comes out and becomes a man and punches him and knocks it back to, to a tree or something like that. And th this is the story as told in one of the, uh, you know, one of the uh, uh, witnesses or one of the people who had told it, told the story. I know this is in the church essay, right? No, this is not in the church essay. Yes, this is one of the things they they uh, uh, leave out. But uh, you can see I kind of highlighted there that he describes something like a toad, which soon assumed the appearance of a man. Uh, and so there's this toad in there in 1823 that's preventing him from getting the plates. It won't let him take them until he uh, until it's it's time for him to come get him. He's not allowed to take the plates because of the the punching toad which I had never heard this story. Rebecca told me this story. She knew this story when she was a kid. And I'm like, you've got to be yeah. kidding me. Where, no, I, I often talk about my Orthodox Mormon upbringing, and this is a perfect example. So this is a story that was told to me at family night. You know, to me, this to my parents, this was perfectly understandable. I should completely believe this, that a toad jumped out and started punching the prophet. Um, so taught to me in family night. I took it to Sunday school, mentioned it to some of my friends and my teachers, quickly learned that they had never heard of anything like that. And indeed, it was something that you probably shouldn't even talk about. So, but me growing up in my family, that was just normal. Of course, of wow. course, a toad man would jump out. And, you know, which explains why I've been female since birth, because I, even as a kid, I was like, this sounds crazy. Mom, dad, are you OK? <laughs> I mean, that was kind of. <laughs> My mom and dad told me that that was anti-Mormon material. Yeah. Stuff. No. But I hadn't heard of it. I didn't have that as the anti-Mormon material. It was that funky looking hat Landon's wearing with that rock. <laughs> uh, but still, I mean, when when these so stories are so suppressed, you don't get a chance to really see the the whole view. And what else it does is it helps them to control the timeline better so that there's not as many blatant contradictions. So, yeah, interesting. Well, and it's interesting that this toad plays into the future because when Mark Hoffman uh, writes his letter, yeah. the White Salamander letter, and Mo pointed this out, that it could be a, 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 a sal it was believable that it could be a salamander because in folk magic, a salamander was a good spirit, but a toad right. wasn't. So they were confused as to why it would be a toad and not a salamander. And that's why when this white salamander letter came out, it was believable. Yeah, it was too close. And I noticed in the chat uh, that Dan Vogel is putting information about where that account can be found. I think that's yeah. what he's talking about. Willard Chase account, yeah, 1834. Yes, yes. D. Howe, E.D. Howe, Mormonism Unveiled. Thank you, Dan Vogel. Yeah, yeah, that's a very important source. Um, yeah, the, the fascinating thing that utterly fascinated me is back then I was really close with the farms group of scholars. And uh, when this came out, they came right out 
it was a huge study. It was thick of all of the potential parallels with the salamander and the angel Moroni and why a salamander is yeah. believable, like you're saying, Landon and all. And I just didn't believe it. I told my ward, my ward, they, they knew I was a big Book of Mormon freak. And they said, would you mind addressing the priesthood, the whole priesthood on this white salamander letter? And I said, yeah, sure, I'll be happy to do that. And I stood up at the pulpit in a special called priesthood meeting so that I could tell them all about this white salamander. And I said, this is pure malarkey. It's baloney. It's not true. And they actually got very, very upset with me. They wanted it to be true. Well, it had to be. It had to fit. Oh, so you're, you're taking the Tanner side on this, Brother Scherz. I said, I don't care who said what. I'm telling you, this is hokey. It doesn't match. And yet everyone in the church thought it did. It's crazy, man. Yeah. And if I remember correctly, Landon, isn't that what also kind of was a catalyst, if I can say catalyst, for Michael Quinn, his ward members and people were asking him, That's what is this? Somebody, you know, a known scholar started to dig into it and find out. So it definitely, I remember that when, I remember when that news came out, I was at BYU and I remember reading about it. And my thought, whenever something like that came out, was just like, I knew it. You know, I was always kind of watching, waiting for things to fall. You know, it was like, I knew it. So Mike I was excited Quinn's, about that news. Yeah, Mike Quinn's book was a yeah. elite game changer. Yeah, yeah. Right. That just, wow. Yeah. And he went to the church and said, when are you really going to address this? And they're like, we're working on it. You know, and he's like, well, can I see what you're working on or see your sources? They're like, no. And so he's like, fine, I'll just do my hey, own. Just so you know, just so you know, just so you know, Maven and I are on the same wavelength. That makes me feel real happy. Yeah. In good company. That's for sure. Yeah, that, that's what I thought, Maven. You're spot on, dear. Yes. So, yeah, so this, this toad thing, though, um, it still has shotgun. Isn't that amazing? Yeah. Right? <laughs> yeah, it, it's like, yeah, how do we know it's not a Ninja Turtle or something else? It's just as ridiculous. <laughs> Raphael, it would have to be Raphael because that's, that's one of the archangels. So That's right, that's right, a religious toad. So, oh so let's. God. So this is the fir very first year this toad thing happens. So let's go to the next year and see what happens. So uh. this is really an interesting story because in 1823, uh, they he's told come back next year to get the plates at the same time, but you need to bring your brother Alvin with you. And when you bring Alvin, then you'll be able to get the plates. <laughs> well, the problem was in December Alvin died. So Alvin dies, and so the time comes to get the plates and they're going, what are we supposed to do? We're supposed to bring Alvin to get the plates, but uh, Alvin's dead. And so this story, and I, I'd really like to get Dan Vogel's uh, input on this. Um, yeah. Rumor starts going around that they've dug up Alvin to bring him to, to get the plates. And uh, the, the Smiths are going, no, we didn't. We didn't do that. Uh, and so they, uh, they put it in the newspaper. That, in the newspaper. We have that clip on the, the slide. You can actually see on that slide, the newspaper article is there. It is. And they yeah. actually put an, uh, an ad in the newspaper that says, <laughs> no, we didn't dig him up. <laughs> but we had to dig him up to make sure to prove that he was still there. 
And so the ground's all, you know, the ground's all been dug up and everything. And you're going, well, and this happened to be right around the same time period that they were supposed to show up with, uh, with Alvin to get, to, to get the plates. You see the date right there in the newspaper, September 20, is that 24? 25th, 25th, 1824. And when you read it, it whereas reports have been in, Industriously put in circulation that my son Alvin had been removed from the place of his internment and dissected, which reports every person possessed of human sensibility must know are peculiarly calculated to harrow up the mind of a parent and deeply wound the feelings of relations. Therefore, for the purpose of ascertaining the truth of such reports, I, with some of my neighbors this morning, repaired to the grave and removing the earth, found the body which had not been disturbed. So no, we didn't dig him up, so we went to dig him up to show you that we didn't dig him up. Um, it's brilliant. Uh, <laughs> Don't you think it's brilliant? Seriously. It's smart. So smart. So here's the other part of this that just absolutely makes no sense. Okay, let's let's give God the benefit of the doubt. He's in charge. Why are you going to pick someone that you know is going to die? Who's the logical choice? Emma. And in fact, she becomes the second choice. But what is this with Alvin thing? This story actually becomes like the third or fourth choice. As usual. Sure, who the next, who it was supposed to be. Ouch, Rebecca. (laughs) Representing. (laughs) If Joseph Smith had. 32 why she was the 33rd choice oh sealed at 23 i think yeah that was it oh dear yeah so this whole thing just just gets weird so we anyone who remembers weekend at bernie's where they drag bernie around you know that's kind of how we you know taking alvin out to try to get the plates and whether they really dug him up or not you know you know it's hard to say at this point but it just seems very uh suspicious that you put you know, this this isn't an obituary. What, what's the opposite of an obituary where you instead of saying we're burying someone, we're we're digging him up. You know? yeah, I, I've got it. That's called crime. Crime. <laughs> Grave oh. robbing. <laughs> Grave robbing. Yeah. So, yeah, definitely, definitely uh, uh, interesting. Uh, oh, there there you go. Dan says it's uh, Joseph Smith's excuse for not getting the plates in 1824 is what he told his family. Um, and they didn't want to give up on the plate. So he basically said, oh, well, I was supposed to bring Alvin, but he's dead, so I can't get the plates, you know? So interesting. Yeah. Not not sure what I'm supposed to do. We're going to have to find another, another person. So, so who's, who's going to be coming next year to the party? Let's just remember now, keep the focus here though, my good friend. Um, Dan Vogel is not a real scholar, according to the apologists in your comments on your most recent Book of Mormon video with Lundball. So, you know. That's right. That's right. A let, dealer, let's a dollar. Let's go next one and see who they invite. Uh, uh, well, first oh, we oh, have yeah. to have a Trexmo. Trexmo. First, yes, we, you have to. Rebecca do the Trexmo. <laughs> so the first one says, hey, Alvin, sorry about this, bro, but we're going to, I can't even read it. We're going to have to borrow you for a few days. We'll have you back in the ground in no time. So <laughs> that's <laughs> And the other one kind of goes back to what we were talking about before. Behold, I am Moroni. No, wait. Behold, I am Nephi. No, that's not right. Damn it. (laughs) (laughs) 
Your Trekkies are the best, man. These memes. <laughs> yeah, are, we're crazy. Those are fun to, fun to make. So my. So let, let's go to the next one. So in, in 1825, Joseph decides that, uh, that, that there's this other seer that's, that's also looking into seer stones. And Joseph thinks that this man is named Samuel Lawrence. Uh, he thinks that he might be the right person for the treasure to bring instead of, of Alvin. And so he kind of takes him out on a, on a test run. And they go out to the, to the Hill Camorra and they're both walking around with their stones in their hats, looking at the ground and they're comparing stones, you know, and it's like they're trying to outdo each other. And so like Samuel Lawrence is going, oh yeah, yeah, I see the plates. Oh, do you see, do you see something else with them? And Joseph's going, no, no, I don't see anything. And, <laughs> and Lawrence goes, uh, uh, oh yeah, no, no, there's, there's like these glasses or these spectacles in there. And then Joseph goes, oh, oh, yeah, I do see them. And so <laughs> Joseph realizes now that Samuel is a kind of a. a he's on to him, isn't he? He's yeah, on he's, to him. Yeah, he's outdoing him with his, you know, oh. it, it's like he's finding stuff with his seer stone that Joseph can't find with his seer stone. So Joseph decides, oh, Sam, Samuel Lawrence isn't the right guy. And so he uh, uh, basically decides that that's not the right person to take. And uh, Samuel Lawrence later was convicted of secreting property, which is basically you take someone's property, you steal it, you hide it, and then you find it in your hat and tell them where it is. And then the people go and find it and they pay you a reward, but you're the one who stole it in the first place uh, to do it. So he was convicted of that. So he wasn't a true seer, but he's the guy who saw the spectacles in the ground and all of a sudden now, when Joseph opens it up, he's got to find spectacles because yeah. they've said that these existed in, in the and they've seen them in in the hat. So very interesting. Very interesting. That the story getting up to this is is just uh, fun <laughs> to say the least. Yeah, and and none of us heard of this either. No, <laughs> no. When was the first time we heard of Samuel Lawrence? Was when. I was an apologist four or five years into it. I was off on the book of Abraham when someone brought this story up. So that, that's very interesting. We were, I think we were all trying to start doing a Book of Mormon defense series. And man, am I glad I'm not on that side of the fence anymore. Ooh, it would suck to be an apologist with fair. No. Lots of gymnastics. Yeah. So let's go to the next one. So 1825, Joseph is going, I don't know who I'm supposed to bring. Um, but he uh, he's out digging in, in Josiah's, uh, Josiah Stoll's place. And he's trying to find a Spanish silver mine in Harmony. Again, using his top hat and his stuff. And he boards with Isaac Hill and meets Lucy Hill through Samuel Lawrence, the guy who uh, was was uh, his competitor there looking at the uh, there you go at the stones and uh, so he signs a treasure treasure digging agreement Isaac Hell does with Stoll and the Smiths and this is how he meets Emma so let's go to the next uh, next slide there so he, oh, he I can tell you what's wrong with this picture the horse is going the wrong direction the horse. <laughs> <laughs> I don't, I, I don't know that, that, 
<laughs> I'm trying to figure that one out, Carrie. <laughs> but th this is this is actually a, a mo one of the most accurate pictures because come sub 22nd September 1827, he he had to marry Emma and he had to have Emma because he felt that was the answer of who he had to bring in order to get the plates. So he he obviously he had to still off with her. He he elopes with her. Uh, his yeah. father didn't her father didn't want him want her to marry him. She felt he was a, a fraud. Uh, he goes off and he, he, he gets married to her because he has to have her in order for him to get the plates. And he was told, this is your last chance, uh, to, to get the, uh, to, to get these plates. And so, I have to say, Landon, if I can just say any girl would fall for that line, right? Who wouldn't? Come on, baby. <laughs> Come on, baby. I got to get the plates. You're the only one. And God wants you to do it. I, I feel like anyone would fall for that. I would fall for that if a girl told me Carrie that. would fall for that. <laughs> I have a hill right up by my house, too. I'm telling you, there could be treasures in that. Oh, I'm going to start going to look with my seer stone. There you go. You might find, you don't know what, you'll probably find as much as he did. Um, so. <laughs> no, and I love that picture because I have to say, like Landon said, you don't, you don't hear this story. I, I taught primary forever. We colored golden plates. We, I didn't, I never said kids get out your black crayons. You're going to need it. We're going to talk about finding the plates. Yeah. They're all dressed in black, which is why we are tonight. Black horse with its black mane braided in a special way, black wagon. <laughs> we never knew that. Yeah, exactly. We horse. never, yeah. Color with your black crayon kids. Yeah. We never heard that story. And, yeah. and the interesting part is he, he, that's, that's why we're dressed in black tonight uh, right. in, in honor of going to get the plates. Man, and woman in black. They, they had to dress all in black and they even painted the face black and everything, which is very folk magic. Uh, yeah. He'd be yeah. in trouble today, uh, but very full of, of folk magic. And when you, when you go back to that picture and you, you look at that picture, the church, this one, this is probably the most accurate picture, but you still see Joseph has a white shirt. You know, he, of course he has to have a white shirt to go get the, to go get the plates, but they also show him bringing the plates back and he didn't bring the plates back. Uh, he actually put them in a hollow of a log and, and then he kept track to make sure they weren't stolen by looking at him in his seer stone and, and he'd tell Emma, no, they're still good. They're okay. I can see them in my seer stone. So even when he went to get the plates, he still didn't come back with the plates. So that's well, one you know what we see here. Then we see here the church messing around or horsing around with history. <laughs> yeah, it, it, that, exactly. Horsing around with history. But the buggy is another interesting part of the story because he stole the buggy. Uh, yeah. The buggy yeah. actually belonged <laughs> to Josiah Stoll. And Josiah Stoll had been on that hill that day digging for treasure, as was Lumen Walters just yeah. days previous. And Lumen Walters is an interesting, very fascinating uh, person. His name was actually Walter the Magician. And he actually was kind of a, a mentor to Joseph Smith on the art of, of uh, seer uh, reading and stuff. Stonery. They'd actually <laughs> been stonery. Is that what it is? Stonery. <laughs> He'd actually been on the hill looking for plates, looking for treasure that very night. He went to Joseph Smith's home to stay the night there. They were on that hill because, again, it's September 21st, a yeah. propitious night for digging treasure. 
they come and then he goes at 2 a.m. and takes their horse and goes and takes Emma and they go and get the plates, although they come back with no plates. Uh, but that's the story of how they got the plates. So uh, it, even though they still don't have the plates, they're in the hollow of the log. He goes and gets them several days later. And then remember, he's carrying them back and he's jumping over the logs and people are hitting him with rifles. And uh, he finally gets them back and buries them under a, a, a stone. Um, so it's fascinating, that, isn't it, that Moroni shocked the living snot out of Joseph Smith when he first tried to get the plates. And then when he finally acquired the plates, he set them down real quick and looked back in and came back and the plates were gone. And Moroni told him, you can't let these plates out of your sight. You have to protect them. And so what's the first thing he do, does when he gets the plates? He hides them in a hollow log for days and doesn't know where they are. But I can see them in my seer stuff. Yep. Why not leave them where they were? Why even get them then? Uh, Why even get them? A couple it? days later. Uh, I mean, he didn't. You, oh, oh, I won't get ahead of the story. He didn't use them to translate the Book of Mormon. No, don't no, give that didn't. away, Terry. Yep. And that <laughs> right. So uh, yeah, so we'll get to that. We'll get to that uh, later. So um, uh, so this is another. This is another interesting uh, uh, story uh, after the translation. <laughs> that just this is just kind of a fun side note. Oh but uh, there's a book called the Book of Pukii. I don't know if I'm saying that right. That's how we've been. I've always called it Pukey. Pukey, Pukei. However you want to say it. But Either way, it has the word puke in it. It's got the word puke. Yeah. <laughs> uh -huh. It's written by Abner Cole. And what was happening? Abner Cole used the pen name Obadiah Dogberry Esquire. And this is the first satire of the Book of Mormon. And what was happening was. Uh, Abner Cole was using the printing office at night that the Book of Mormon was getting printed in uh, to print. Uh, he had a, a paper or something that he was printing at night. And so he'd go in and he'd see the copy of the Book of Mormon. So he got to read it and he knew Walter the magician. He knew all, he knew the Smiths. He knew all these people. And so he tells the story. And he writes this satire. And it's probably actually the most accurate history of the coming forth of the Book of Mormon. It's only two chapters long. Look it up on on uh, on uh, YouTube or, or Google it and look at and read it. it. It's really a funny story. He just makes fun of Walter the magician and how they went and got these plates, and it, it's it's quite an amusing story uh, to read. Uh, eventually, uh, uh, Hiram comes and threatens him because this is a copyrighted material, and he stops writing. But it's 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 really probably the first and most accurate story of how how the Book of Mormon really came about. Uh, so it's a fun one to read. So uh, read that if you get a chance. Uh, the, the Book of Pukii. Uh, very interesting. Okay, now let's get into the into the real scholarship here. <laughs> um, you want to read that, Carrie? Sure. The angel charged Joseph Smith to translate the book from the ancient language in which it was written. The young man, however, had very little formal education. In other words, he was not a scholar and was incapable of writing a book on his own, let alone translating an ancient book written from an unknown language known in the Book of Mormon as Reformed Egyptian. And there we have it, proof that Reformed Egyptian is real. There you go. Look. There you have if it. If you right can there. read this, you might be Joseph Smith. We... <laughs> We have no idea what Reformed Egyptian is. It doesn't exist. Uh, it never has existed. 
And we, but what we do have is we do have the uh, Professor Anton characters that uh, Martin Harris supposedly took to Professor Anton, which are supposed to be writings of this reformed Egyptian. And that's what you see in the lower right-hand corner there uh, is the mm -hmm. Anton characters. I'm sorry it's so small, uh, but if you if you want to look these up. You can uh, find this, Google it. Yeah. Yeah, it, it's pretty obvious that not a single one of these characters is in any way Egyptian in nature. Um, what you have up at the top, it, there, there were kind of two languages in Egypt that were being used. Uh, there was the Heratic and the Demotic. And uh, the Demotic is more uh, like symbols uh, type of language. And the the Heratic has, uh, you know, more kind of like... Yeah, the Heratic was a shorthand. A, a more of a shorthand, yeah. But these were the two that were being used um, at the time that in 600 BC, both of these were actually being used. One would be used more by a priestly uh, cast, and then and then there was the more common writing. But we put both of those up there so you could compare those to the Reformed Egyptian on the Anton characters, and you see that um, that none of these characters uh, are Egyptian in any manner. And it, it always amazes me when you look at the Anton story that he took him to uh, Professor uh, Anton. Uh, because they say, oh, well, he's, he confirmed that they were accurate. Uh, and then there's that argument over whether they really confirmed them or whether they really were accurate. Well, yeah. we don't need to go to Professor Anton right now. We could go to any professor because we've got <laughs> the characters and say, are these accurate, true and accurate characters? Yeah. And he said some were Assyriac. It was amazing. He never said any of these are true reformed Egyptian. Chaldaic. At Chaldaic, Assyric, it's like, well, I thought they were Reformed Egyptian. What, yeah. what does this matter? But you could take exactly. them to any any uh, linguist that do, you know deals with ancient languages, and none of them are gonna uh, are gonna show that they uh, uh, are, 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 are yeah are, are actual. Um, so well, Robert Rittner couldn't translate it either. The, the what? Robert Rittner, he couldn't translate those characters either. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Egyptian, reformed, deformed, distorted, or however. <laughs> uh, John is saying they're not the Anton characters, uh, that we don't have those. Um, oh, that's true. And, yeah. and this is a copy. Yeah, there, it, yeah it, there's, well, there's copies, and, and of course, there's argument whether, is this even real? Is the copy really, really a real copy? Because... Again, it's a big hole in the Book of Mormon that these characters are not uh, what what we had. Um, Dan uh, there said he thought they were copied out of a book of some kind, uh, but it's interesting that those characters on the on the shred that we have, if you turn them, you can spell things in English uh, just by turning them. Uh, I've seen one too where you can where they show that it has. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, and then it has the entire English alphabet. And all they've done is they've either they've either uh, flipped it around 180 the other way, or it was sideways and they lifted it this way or this way, or it's upside down to where, I mean, you can easily manipulate letters to make them look foreign. So, so John, John, we'll have to have John. Uh, maybe this is something you can have John talk about. He says they were written by John Whitmer. Um, yeah, I've heard that before. After yeah. Harris showed the characters to Anton, so there, yeah, there is as Christian Whitmer. That Christian Whitmer wrote them. 
That's what Dan says. So John and Dan oh. are disagreeing. No big deal. Yeah, okay. Uh, and but they yeah, nervous. Again, this is one of the reasons why they say, yeah, we can clearly tell what you know by by reading it that much can be gained and really nothing can be gained because we <laughs> we don't seem to have anything uh, here that uh, that that really tells us what happened. Uh, you know, what does reformed Egyptian look like? No one has ever heard of reformed Egyptian, but somehow. Uh, uh, these people in 600 BC show up in Mesoamerica writing Reformed Egyptian, uh, which John Lundwell in the Mormonish episode clearly shows that there was no alphabet uh, language in, in any of the Americas. So the whole, anyway, this is problematic all the way around uh, when we talk about these characters. So, but But still, I do believe that Dan Peterson might have a good point when he says the horses were translated into tapirs. Well, I don't think anyone argues that one anymore. That's the only explanation. <laughs> that one's pretty solidly established now. So, one well, anachronism taken care of. Two hundred ninety-six so, to go. Yeah, Dan. Dan saying that the, the Joseph Smith papers say it was John Whitmer, but the Metcalf showed it was probably Christian. So, as you can see, even even that's up for uh, debate. But right. these are the characters that are commonly referred to as the Anton characters, uh, saying that they were copied from something uh, at at some point. Yeah. So, um, very, very good. Okay, let's go. Let's go to the next part. Uh, so I'll, I'll read that. Joseph's wife Emma insist. This is this is the essay. We're going back to the essay now. Uh, Joseph's wife Emma insisted that at the time of translation, Joseph could neither write nor dictate a coherent and well-worded letter, let alone dictate <laughs> a book like the Book of Mormon. This is a big thing the church wants you to think, that he's uneducated, that he can't write, that there's no way that he produced a book. The only problem is we actually have a letter from him from at the yeah. very same yeah. time as the translation's happening. So yeah. if you go back, this is the letter right here, and this is copied as best as, as I could get it. Uh, but And I'm not going to read the whole thing, but it says, Respected sir, I would inform you that I arrived at home on Sunday morning the 4th after having a prosperous journey and found all well. Uh, the people are all friendly to us except a few who are in opposition to everything unless it is something that is exactly like themselves. And two of our most formidable per uh, persecutors are now under censor and are cited to a trial in the church for crimes that, if true, are worse than all the gold book business. One, do we do not rejoice in the affliction of our enemies, but we anyway, it keeps going. You can yeah. see that he clearly can write a letter. Um, now, one yeah. thing to keep in mind is in this time period, you don't have a lot of dictionaries, so spelling of things can be spelled many different ways. They kind of sounded things out. So uh, even though it looks, has nothing to do with being uneducated. Right. Exactly. So and punctuation. Lack of punctuation is another issue there, which might make someone say, oh, look, they're not educated, but not true. That's yeah. not, yeah. It's like Dan said too, in his book, Charisma, I'm telling you, you mm -hmm. got to read that book. It is true that Joseph Smith was somewhat undereducated compared to a lot of the people in his area, but he was above everyone in intelligence. He was intelligent, not educated. 
So that's a very important point Dan Vogel brings up. So yeah, yeah, this is interesting. More evidence. And 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 Rebecca hit this. So, uh, but take a look at that letter. I know it's kind of small there, but what you notice is there's no punctuation. There's no periods. There's no question marks. There's no uh, comment. Oh, yeah. Uh, he he doesn't. This is this is a kind of a common thing in Joseph's writing is he doesn't use uh, he doesn't use punctuation. Interesting. Um, yeah. Th th this kind of becomes important a little bit later. So uh, let, let's move to the next. Okay. Thank you for bringing that up. <laughs> okay. Um, Carrie, you want to read that one? Joseph received the plates in September 1827 and the following spring in Harmony, Pennsylvania, began translating them in earnest with Emma and his friend Martin Harris serving as his main scribes. The resulting English transcription known as the Book of Lehi and referred to by Joseph Smith as written on 116 pages was subsequently lost or stolen. As a result, Joseph Smith was rebuked by the Lord and lost the ability to translate for a short time. So th this is important because we all know the lost, you know, that he lost the, the ability to translate. But we also find out that the Lord took back the Urim and Thummim, the breastplates and the, and the uh, uh, spectacles that supposedly he was using to translate. And we never hear that he got them back. So if the Lord takes them, how is he now supposed to translate uh, the book? And so that's where this kind of becomes problematic is the spectacles are now gone. And it's important. I think there's like seven people who say they saw the spectacles, but no one had ever seen the spectacles. They were always wrapped in something and they'd fill them. Exactly. And when you start reading the descriptions, everyone's describing something completely different. You know, some are saying, oh, they were, you know, round stones in a, in a like a pair of glasses and then someone else describes it in a completely different uh shape and that they're, they're attached to a breastplate and so nobody is describing the same thing when they're all saying that they've seen or they're witnessing of this uh again god took back the breast implants i like that one uh <laughs> 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 well, that will happen in the resurrection. That will, yes. Yeah, Everybody goes back to what they originally had. Yeah. Don't worry, ladies. You'll have perfect boobs in the resurrection. <laughs> oh, that's a that's a man's comment right yeah. there. Man, <laughs> well, man in heaven. Do I have to mansplain this? <laughs> My wife's probably. That's right. Don't you say edit yeah. that out. So, and the other thing that's important is this, is that, uh, is this next slide right here is, you know, we always hear that, oh, Joseph only, he did, he did this whole thing in like three months, uh, which actually isn't that, uh, difficult if you're actually translating, it only would require about 45 minutes a day to, to translate 500 pages over, uh, you know, over that many months. Uh, but, uh, Carrie, can you go ahead and read this, uh, this one? Yeah. Joseph began translating again in 1829, and almost all of the present Book of Mormon text was translated during a three-month period between April and June of 1829. His chief scribe during these months was Oliver Cowdery, a school teacher from Vermont who learned about the Book of Mormon while boarding with Joseph's parents in Palmyra. 
called by God in a vision, Cowdery traveled to Harmony to meet Joseph Smith and investigate further. Of his experience as scribe, Cowdery wrote, these were the days never to be forgotten to sit under the sound of a voice dictated by the inspiration of heaven. So they say that he wrote, you know, the book was written in just three months, and you always hear this as an apologetic argument. There's no way that he could have written it in that short a period of time, um, which, which is, uh, first of all, we know that he got the plates uh, in 1827, and yeah. it's, uh, it's June of uh, 1829 when he finishes the, the translation. So he, he's actually had almost a year, year and a half that he's had the plates in his possession that he could have translated them. Now they'll say, well, no, he only the scribe, you know, uh, Oliver Cowdery came and scribed for him only for three months. And that's where the Book of Mormon was written. But to, yes, if you want to believe their story, then I guess that's true. But he, you know, literally had the plates for two years that he could have been working on this uh, and and working with this story and, and creating this story, not, not just three months. So in order to be true, you, you, you have to say, no, it, if he really had the plates, uh, he's really had them in his possession for almost a year and a half. And the funny thing is, is uh, that uh, you see there in that he completed the translation in June of 1829, but in January to March of 1829, he sends people to Canada to actually try to sell the Book of Mormon copyright in Canada. Oh, so very interesting. The church now wants to make the argument. No, he was going to uh, try to get a copyright. He wasn't trying to sell the copyright, but he sent three people to get the copyright. Uh, does it really take three people to get a copyright? And they came back and they were not successful. And it's like, well, how hard is it to get a copyright if you have the book and the, the things? Why were they not successful? So I don't know if they were trying to sell. They were trying to sell it to someone and say, you get the copyright and then you'll have the copyright here in Canada. Uh, and then you sell the books here in Canada. But that before it even went to publication, he was trying to sell the copyright for the book. Exactly. I, I bet he, was, he could sell the gold plates instead. Yeah, that tells you the intention, I think. I mean, I've even heard um, in some circles, they say that it was written to be a book that was just sold, to, much like the Blair Witch Project, right? It has an interesting backstory. Here it is. It was never meant to be a religious text. And that's why so quickly they were trying to sell it. As I said, that's just you know supposition. But it is interesting to think about what the true intention was to begin with. And then perhaps realizing, you know what, I can do more with this. I can't sell it. Nobody wants it. But this could be a religious text. This could have some value here. You never yeah. know. No one will buy it. Let's give it away. Let's print thousands of yeah. copies and have our missionaries. They can't even do that anymore. <laughs> <laughs> Let's put it in hotel rooms everywhere. Yes. So, yeah, it, it, it's just interesting that uh, I agree with Rebecca. I think that this was always a book that he just put an interesting backstory to. Why else would you be selling the copyright before you even uh sent the book out and it's mm -hmm. on these gold plates that's been preserved why are you selling the copyright that's never made any sense of why you're out trying to sell a copyright to the book of mormon uh and well and that's a false prophecy it's just gonna say mm -hmm. that yeah. oh oh sorry i didn't mean to but no we're but, on the same page like mine <laughs> yes you'll go to canada you'll be successful mm -hmm. they can 
back and they said, what the heck, Joe? And this is where he made his really famous remark that completely undermines his entire life. And Mormons don't recognize this. So I will say it crystal clear. This was the moment when Joseph Smith, who had prophesied in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, Jehovah, that you will sell the copyright from the most correct book on the face of the planet, they didn't. Then Joseph said, well, brethren, some revelations are from just men. Some revelations are from the devil. And some revelations are from God. If Joseph Smith couldn't even tell the difference, why should I believe one blanking thing he ever said, prophecy-wise? Because he didn't know if it was from the devil or from man or from God. How am I going to? By the power of the Holy Ghost? Joseph Smith had Moroni visiting him, Elijah, Jesus and God the Father himself, and he couldn't tell the difference. You see how that wipes it all out. That's fast. And it happened right up front, 1829. So, yeah. And, and I think, and I interestingly, he, he went ahead and followed any prophecy that he got. It's not like he even tried to say, discern between them. He just said, I'll do this. Oh, this, I'll do this. It oh, doesn't matter. It was only forward, after I'll the fact this. when things, yeah, did not pan out that then you say, ah, who could have known? So it is. It's a very pivotal well, moment. Well, now we just say, oh, well, he was just speaking as a man. <laughs> And a lot of the scholars here in the uh, in the chat are saying, you know, uh, he, he was trying to sell the copyright to pay off Harris's the debt so that he was free from Harris, which which is probably true. But it seems that God would certainly be able to provide a better way than selling the copyright to the book that he's preserved for his entire, you know, for Century. a thousand years buried. He, in he's got Moses Smith, 200 pounds of gold for crying out loud. <laughs> <laughs> you, you think he could tell him to go to Massachusetts and go into a basement of a house and find money or something, you know? <laughs> yeah, how did that work out? <laughs> <laughs> oh, my. Oh. Uh, the, the fun thing about this is you can't make this stuff up. It's It's just... Sure you can. Joseph Smith did. We well, did. I, I guess, yeah, it, it, it gets funnier and funnier as you study. The deeper you dive yeah. into it, the, the more weird it gets. And you're just going, why would they do this? This makes no sense. But yeah. uh, that's why Mormonism after you leave is far more fun than when you're in. Because <laughs> you yeah, get to discover it's, the... It's why you can't leave it alone. Can't leave it alone. It's too much fun. <laughs> Are you kidding me? Where will you go? We're going to go to your own history, dudes. <laughs> That's perfect. That's where we're going. Uh, so let's, go, let's go to the next one there. Um, so uh, go ahead, uh, Carrie, and, and read that okay. one again. The manuscript that Joseph Smith dictated, Oliver Cowdery and others, is known today as the original manuscript about 28% of which still survives. This manuscript corroborates Joseph Smith's statements that the manuscript was written within a short time frame and that it was dictated from another language. <coughs> For example, it includes- Hold it together, Carrie. <laughs> Watch. Hold it together. <laughs> it includes errors that suggest the scribe 
heard words incorrectly rather than misread words copied from another manuscript. Well, I mean, my bosom's burning now, baby. Yeah, that that's what what that's kind of a great claim from the church. Yeah, it was evident from the manuscript that uh he was reading from a dictation and not copying from another manuscript and that it was clearly from another language that he was uh you know moving this over which is uh, uh I, I don't know how that works i i don't know how you translate from you know evidently he looked in this stone and it changed it into english um and would tell him what sentences and he would read the sentence that the scribe would write the sentence and then the scribe would read it back and then he'd say correct and then they'd move on and do the next sentence so with that being the case, you know, we shouldn't be seeing a lot of errors. Uh, we shouldn't be seeing any errors. Well, you can certainly see a misspelling or something. What You know, I could see that, but uh, but that's not what we get. And that, that's it, why. There's one account. Is it is it uh, David Whitmer's address to all believers where he says the words would glow mm -hmm. and they would not disappear until the scribe got it right. Got it then right. Joseph could move on. There should be no errors, man. Yeah. So, so let's go to the, let's, let's go to the next one then. Um, and, and we want to look a little bit about this because what, what, uh, that they add this, this is how they say that we know that it was translated from an, a, a language other that, that was not English. Okay. Uh, says, in addition, some grammatical constructions that are more characteristic of Near Eastern languages than English appear in the original manuscript, suggesting that the base language of the translation was not English. There you have it. What more do you want, Landon Brophy, you skeptic non-scholar? The church has told <laughs> us, so it's got to be true. There <laughs> They're referring to Hebraisms, chiasmus, idioms. This is what the church points to and says, oh, you know, this is a this is a word that's very, uh, you know, comes from Hebrew or, or had its finding and there's no way Joseph Smith could have known it. Or we all know about chiasmus where you start and it's a sentence structure like the picture here on the right. It goes to one point and then it goes back to itself. Um, well, you know, scholars have looked at the book, The Late War, and they found, uh, you know, many different uh, Hebraisms. Like one of the things that they say is, you know, the, it came to pass. The, the term it came to pass is a Hebraism. Well, Nibley claimed it was an Egyptianism. And that's the thing. It's it's not really any of these, but uh, they, they, they're, they're, they're <laughs> grasping at it. But uh, you can see just by looking at the, mm -hmm. if you look at the, the thing there on the left, the late war, here's examples yeah. of, he, here's examples of, uh, Hebraisms in the late war. So was the late war written in another language than English? No, we know it was written in English. And yet here they are using, uh, using the same sentence structure. And in fact, when you compare the late war to the Book of Mormon, there's whole areas where the story sounds very similar, very familiar. Uh, but several of these terms are what they refer to as Hebraisms and say, oh, no, this, these are true because they are Hebraisms. But we know scholars have shown that Hebraisms uh, exist everywhere. And also chi uh, chiasmus uh, exist everywhere. And, uh, and can I just say, Dan Vogel brought up in the chat that they exist in the DNC. So they do, to me, yes. there you go. Yeah. 
Well, I mean, the, on on the right here, you've got on this wonderful slide, 21 pair of chiasms in the late war by Gilbert Hunt, 1816. 21 pair. That's enough to show. All it takes is one. See, this is like the stupid argument of the new apologetic that there used to be 290 anachronisms. We've got to whittle down, boys. We've only got them down to now they're like 38 left. Not, not understanding. All you need is one. All you, All you need is one genuine chiasm in an English book, and that destroys the Book of Mormon apologetic. Yeah. Well, and it's Coco just a Bean Bean pattern. Yeah, Dr. Seuss. I was just going to say Seuss. that was she's yeah. saying there. It's all throughout. I am. I do not like them here nor there. I do not like them on a tapir. <laughs> Tapir. <laughs> the tapir might be where we get green ham. I don't know. <laughs> I feel like it could be. <laughs> oh, yeah, that's a really good slide right there. But, uh, but there's a couple other things to keep in mind when we talk about things like chiasmus and idioms is a chiasmus in Hebrew would or which I don't understand why a Hebraism, since it was written in Reformed Egyptian, why a Hebraism would show up anyway, because it wasn't written in Hebrew. It was written in Reformed Egyptian. Uh, chiasmus being that, that what would be a chiasmus in Hebrew when translated to English is not going to translate to be a chiasmus. And again, as we said, in uh, if you haven't seen the latest episode of Mormonish with uh, with uh, Dr. Lundwall, he points out that, that a chiasmus is a literary device that's far too advanced for any writing system in the Americas uh, that's ever been found. So there is, and, and we have, if, if there was a literary society this advanced, we would have found writing from them by, at, by this time. So a chiasmus in the Book of Mormon is not a, is not a, uh, it's actually an anachronism. It shouldn't it's not be a proof. There. Yeah, yeah, it, it should not be there. Come from any American, any pre-Columbian American writer could not have produced a chiasmus. Mm -hmm. So it's actually a proof against the Book of Mormon that these type of literary devices are in there. They only could have been written in America in the 19th century when someone Dan Ogle makes the point of the night right here. I'm even going to post that real quick. <laughs> Book of Mormon was written in Reformed King James Version. Yep. There you go. 100%. Yeah. And, and John Lundbo also mentioned that perhaps when we use the word advanced, maybe a more correct word is to say just different, just too yeah, it's different. A different. Yeah. It's yeah. Very different. Yeah. Good watch point, watch his episode and you'll you'll be blown away. You'll understand. We're still exactly trying to understand it. So oh. <laughs> <laughs> it's incredible. Yep. Watch it twice. Watch it three times. You'll be going, wow. Yeah, I, I can see this. Why didn't I know this before? JC, it says, I have ruined Dr. Seuss. He will uh, never be the same again. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay, let's go to the next one. Uh, right, we are making progress. Yeah, and I want to get through this. We're making some exquisitely interesting points here. This is fascinating. You want me to read this one? Yeah, go I ahead. It's big. Unlike, Maybe Rebecca could even read that one. But you know what? I can read this one. Let me okay, try one. Okay. <laughs> uh, my screen is so small. That's the issue. It couldn't unlike possibly be my aging eyesight. No. Okay. Um, unlike most dictated drafts, the original manuscript was considered by Joseph Smith to be, in substance, a final product. 
that's very interesting. Now, so how do we know that? This is a well, this is a copy of of you can't really read it because remember they they took the original and they put it in the temple the cornerstone of the temple the only small yeah. por portion of it uh, remains or twenty eight percent or something like that um, but we we know uh, let, let's just go to the next one then we'll talk a little sure. bit more about the about the uh, thing there um, Carrie can you read that one. To assist in the publication of the book, Oliver Cowdery made a handwritten copy of the original manuscript. So this handwritten copy is known today as the printer's manuscript because Joseph Smith did not call for punctuation. In other words, no periods, commas, or question marks as he dictated. Such marks are not in the original manuscript. The typesetter later inserted punctuation marks when he prepared the text for the printer with the exceptions of punctuation, formatting, other elements of typesetting, and minor adjustments required to correct copying and scribal errors, the dictation copy became the text of the first printed edition of the Book of Mormon. So this is actually kind of interesting. Um, when Rebecca and I work on these slides, uh, often she'll read something as I'm typing the slide or something like that. And when she reads it, uh, she would say, like, pull up, pull up the slide again. And, uh, you know, if she's going to, she would say, to assist in the publication, and I'm typing, of the book, comma, Oliver Cowdery made a handwritten copy of the original manuscript, period. Because I'm typing it, and I need to know where the punctuation goes. Sure. But in the original, when Joseph is looking at it in the stone, and he's making sure that it's correct, um, he never reads any punctuation. Supposedly he's seen it on a rock and he's reading it, but he's not saying comma. He's not saying period. He's not saying question mark. He's not putting any punctuation in it. But remember that letter that Joseph Smith couldn't write? There's no punctuation in it. So Joseph dictated the same way he wrote. With no punctuation. You would think well, that if God is, you know, showing him on a rock and telling him that God could make sure there was punctuation in there. Well, I was going to say, all of us might say God doesn't use punctuation. We all know that. He's the God, king of the run-on sentence. That's right. God's major in college was not English. Let's get that right. That's right. That's right. <laughs> but no, that is very interesting. It really is because there is no punctuation in the letter and there is no punctuation on the manuscript. On the original manuscript. On the fact, original manuscript. E.B. Grandin complained because he said, this, this is horrible. I Even the printer's manuscript, he was going, it's completely all the punctuation's wrong. He started making them bring them in several days early because they were only bringing them in the ones that were supposed to be printed that night. And he started saying, "No, you got to give them to me earlier because I got to have time to fix this. I this it's is a hot mess English." <laughs> and so he'd have to sit and fix them uh, yes. before he could set the typeset so that uh, uh, they could actually print the book because the the Eng the English was horrible. The uh, the punctuation wasn't there, and he had to fix all of that. So well, and Dan Vogel, Dan Vogel made a very good point. Of course, it's oral performance. Yep. If you're reciting, if you're giving a performance, if you're telling a, myth a mythological story, you're not going to stop and say, period. You're telling it. 
You're reciting right, it. Right. Let's, I'll bet uh, the printer was dang grateful two-thirds of those books were sealed. That's for sure. <laughs> the, the, the other thing is, it, what if he'd written it down before and he was actually reading, he had copies in his hat or something he was reading, you know, if he'd have written it himself, he would have written it with no punctuation. With no punctuation. Just like he wrote. Yeah. So that's, that's just something that, uh, uh, you know, makes you think, uh, hmm, that's interesting. So uh, anyway, uh, uh, that that's something to come up. So this is Rebecca's favorite part, the translation instruments. Um, uh, Carrie, go ahead and read that one. Then I'll... Uh, Rebecca will talk a little bit about the Urim and Thummim. Okay, translation instruments. Many accounts in the Bible show that God transmitted revelations to his prophets in a variety of ways. Elijah learned that God spoke not to him through the wind or fire or earthquake, but through a still small voice. Paul and other early Christian apostles sometimes communicated with angels and on occasion with the Lord Jesus Christ. At other times, revelation came in the form of dreams or visions, such as the revelation to Peter to preach the gospel to the Gentiles or through sacred objects like the Urim and Thummim. Okay, Rebecca, take it away. What well, is the Urim and Thummim, very interesting to me. When we did our book club episode on early Mormonism and the magic worldview, we studied a lot about that. And, and you know, the, the church tells you it's a sacred stone. It's a very religious object. It's not exactly, not exactly how it was used. And I actually, I'm so mad I can't find it, but I actually, I made my husband dress up as a priest with an ephod with the Urim and Thummim for Halloween. And I cannot find the dang costume, but it was hilarious. So basically you would have these two rocks, the Urim and Thummim, but they were more like dye, more like in Vegas, you know? So if you can see there, you would put on this special apron, it would have pouches at the top on the shoulders and the rocks would go in the pouches. So then when a king or someone had a question, they would call the priest in, the priest would take the rocks off of the pouches on the shoulder, put them in the pocket of the apron, kind of fumble them all around, you know, like rolling the die. And then it's like casting lots, right? Uh, reading tea leaves, the same kind of concept. It was, you know, looking at runes and, and or rolling a dice. And then they would tell you, oh, it's a good day to go to war. So that's really what they were. But I feel like looking for some kind of biblical tie-in something to make it, give it authenticity. They just said, oh, th those are rocks, those are rocks. Yeah, so Urim and Thummim. <laughs> and that may be very simplistic, but it was interesting to learn how they were used. They were literally like casting lots, trying to decide what the future is, what's your fortune, should we go to war, should we do this? Very interesting. Yeah, you could only ask yes or no questions to it. Yeah. It, it was like the magic, you know, uh, you shake it and it gives you a yes or no or whatever. Um, you, It didn't, you, you couldn't translate. It's not a translator. Yeah, no, you couldn't, you couldn't do it's anything. Not a like translator. Hold on. Now I might have the solution then because I don't have a Urim and Thummim. I have a Thummim and a Thummim. That could help. I'm just saying. Yes or no. Urim and Thummim. Yeah. <laughs> That's it. Get a mixed signal. Uh, then. Yeah, so Fred, John said magic eight ball. ball. Exactly like a magic eight ball. Can yeah. you imagine? If <laughs> so it. it so these magic, and it's funny, whenever something sounds made up, the church tries to go to Old Testament scripture or somewhere yeah. to prove Authenticity. That it, oh, look, Peter talked to angels. Uh, Peter saw a vision. 
Why is it strange that Joseph Smith looked at a rock in his hat that he'd used to dig the gold plates uh, two years before? You know, <laughs> it's like, that's not even, number one, that's not even a comparison, but to just say, well, be, because it's weird in the Old Testament, it's okay that it's weird in the in the uh, Book of Mormon. This is how God works. He just uses weird things. Uh, just, uh, okay, well, I don't believe the Bible ones either. Then. <laughs> They're just as weird. That doesn't make it so. That does, That's not a proof that it happened. But the Urim and Thummim that they describe these spectacles in a breastplate have nothing to do with the Urim and Thummim we read about in the Bible. Uh, they... They, how did they get there? Where did they come from? Uh, you know, some people say it's the rocks that the brother of Jared changed in. And so so the Urim and Thummim is used very loosely. It's like they started calling everything the Urim and Thummim. They started calling the rock a Urim and Thummim. The seer stone was a Urim and Thummim. Anything that they used to translate was called a Urim and Thummim to make it sound Old Testament. I have the Urim and Thummim right here. That would be an, if you used it, you could call it that. I've got a Urim and a Hiram right here. <laughs> Urim and Thummim. Uh, uh, Joseph Smith used uh, Urim and Thummim to distract from uh, folk magic. Yeah, he wanted to make it sound like it wasn't real. That it, it was, was biblical. Yeah, yeah, biblical. he did. Yep. Instead of instead of this, and you see that the church thought it was so ridiculous that they hid the story for years until it finally resurfaced. That no, he was using a they excommunicated people for claiming he translated with the rock in a hat. Yep. Instead because, of the Roman thumb, because it's folk magic, and uh, they knew the church knew that people had moved beyond folk magic and would not accept it as a true translation with folk magic. So um, let's go to the next one. Well, we, we've, technically speaking, I need to find a plastic pop bottle I can crush tonight to prove I'm following I'm glad you ended that sentence by saying crush. I wasn't sure what you were meaning. I have my own Urim and Thummim, our phones. There it is. Lord works in mysterious ways. Mine keeps coming up with chess. Can you believe it? It's well, so ironic. Well, I think it's an interesting point. When we read Michael Quinn's book, he said everything started out folk magic, right? And that was kind of fine with the general general populace. You know, Joseph was cool for doing that. Digging treasure. Suddenly things started to shift a little bit, right? The unchurched became church. And then it wasn't so cool to say it was a treasure guardian, but it was really cool to say angel yeah it's an angel you know i know these isn't my seer stone it's uh urim and thummim i mean again that's a little simplistic but i feel like he kind of followed the trend all of a sudden religion was in folk magic the occult out interesting yeah good observation rebecca yeah yeah, yeah. that's a, just fascinating and dan brings up a, another point he said the breastplate was associated with the sword of laban not the in the dnc and then not the uh uh, Urim and Thummim. That's one of the things you see is sometimes the Urim Thummim's by itself, the, the, the spectacles, and other times it's supposed to be attached to a breastplate. So it's like, where did this breastplate come from? Where is, you know, where did all that happen? How did this get weaved into the story? It just doesn't make sense. Uh, so uh, again, more problems that just you sit and go, well, this makes, <laughs> this story is being made up as it goes. Everyone sees something and they got to take all these pieces that someone said they were told and try to make them work and they just don't work together. Yeah. He was just making it up on the fly. Yeah. yeah. And, and people would believe it and then they'd tell their story. And now you had to incorporate it into the story somehow. Yeah. Oh, so, okay. Let's move That's on. Good. All right. 
Doctrine? What doctrine? <laughs> okay, uh, I'll read this one. Joseph Smith, this is from the essay again. Joseph Smith stands out among God's prophets because he was called to render into his own language an entire volume of scripture amounting to more than 500 printed pages containing doctrine that would deepen and expand the theological understanding of millions of people for this monumental task. God prepared additional practical help in the form of physical instruments. There you have it. What's so, the question about that? Yeah, he deepened the understanding, the doctrinal understanding. Uh, but then the question comes up, what's in the Book of Mormon that changes the doctrinal that we didn't have in the Bible? Kolob, you idiots. Kolob. Where's Kolob? This drives me nuts. Doctrine, what doctrine? There, oh, this I have this discussion with lots of people, which is why I appreciate our next slide. It's not what's in the Book of Mormon. What isn't in the Book of Mormon? Oh. It's just astounding to me. Yeah, pull that up, Carrie, and, and yeah, yeah, if, yeah. You go, if you want to go. Now she's wetting our appetites. Here we go. <laughs> The most correct book that gives us the cornerstone of our religion. And yet, if you look at these lists, these things are not mentioned in the Book of Mormon. Yeah, no, th th there's no priesthood. There's no eternal marriage. There's no temple ordinances. There's no tithing. There's no mention of preexistence. There's no mention of word of wisdom. There's no mention of eternal progression. No mention of baptism for the dead. No mention of the laying on of hands, no mention of the sealing power, no mention of anointings, no mention of garments. And the nature of the Godhead is Trinitarian in the Book of Mormon. It does not clearly define what that is. So when the missionaries are out there saying, you know, this book contains the fullness of the gospel, all that stuff's in the DNC and the, and, uh, the Pearl of Great Price. It's not <laughs> the Pearl of Great Price and the Doctrine and Covenants is the keystone of our religion it's the one that has all the truly unique mormon doctrines not the book of mormon what and there's happened? no tapirs there's no tapirs there's no corn there's no either which is <laughs> corn should be in the book of mormon too uh you know uh well, in fact interestingly interesting landon i think we read um if you were to create a religion from what is in the book of mormon only in the book of mormon it would just be kind of your mid-level protestant religion Oh, that's just nothing really unique. There, there was nothing in there that Protestant religion of Joseph Smith's time wasn't already doing um, at the time. So, uh, yeah, no, no mention of cleaning the Lord's toilet. Yeah. Well, when did that become doctor? <laughs> Skeptic. <laughs> On Sunday, no less, when you're supposed to be resting from labor. So. It's just interesting that we we hold that up, and I see all these missionaries out there, and you know, God bless them, they're out there telling, giving their testimony, saying, you know, the fullness of the gospel of Jesus Christ can be found in this book, and in reality, none of those things are in the book. Um, it, it just didn't happen. Um, and we're told we have to crawl over it, around it, under it, sideways. I mean, it it is held up as the most important thing, but it does not contain. The fullness of that gospel. That sounds like something stupid Elder Holland would say. Oh, wait. <laughs> uh, All right, let's let's go to the next one. You want me to read this one? Yeah, go ahead. Oh, yes. <laughs> <laughs> so we have a picture of the gold plates up on the top left and a seer stone. Oh, no, those are spectacles on the gold plates. Yeah, there's a... Yes pair of glasses there, kind of. So, Joseph Smith of his scribes wrote of two instruments used in translating the Book of Mormon. 
According to witnesses of the translation, when Joseph Smith looked into the instruments, the words of scripture appeared in English. One instrument called in the Book of Mormon the Interpreters is better known to Latter-day Saints today as the Urim and Thummim. Joseph found the interpreters buried in the hill with the plates. Those who saw the interpreters described them as a clear pair of stones bound together with a metal rim. The Book of Mormon referred to this instrument together with its breastplate as a device kept and preserved by the hand of the Lord and handed down from generation to generation for the purpose of interpreting languages. Let, let's stop right there for just Yeah, a I was going to say, wait a minute. He, yeah. it, nothing's been handed down. It was hidden in a hill. It was hidden in a hill, and then it was taken away from him as soon as he did the first 116 pages and was never given back. So it was saved for generations of time to translate 116 pages that are lost, and then it was taken back and never used again. Landon, that's pretty skeptical. I, that's very ske spectacle. It's, spe it's spectacle. Very spectacle. <laughs> it's a spectacle. That is fascinating, isn't it? Yeah. The other instrument, which Joseph Smith discovered in the ground years before he retrieved the gold plates, was a small oval stone or seer stone. As a young man during the 1820s, Joseph Smith, like others in his day, used the seer stone to look for lost objects and buried treasure. As Joseph grew to understand his prophetic calling, he learned that he could use this stone for the higher purpose of translating scripture and inventing doctrine. Oh, wait, that's not what it says. <laughs> well, one, th there's those weasel words we always talk about. Yeah. Joseph, like others in his day, to make it like, well, other people were using seer stones to find lost objects and buried treasure. Why and translate. Joseph was. <laughs> yeah. yeah, right. Yeah, they're trying to normalize him, aren't they? Yeah. yeah, they're trying to make it sound like it's perfectly normal. And and when well, others were using them, but the others were also seen as kind of you know the fringy charlatan. You know, they were yeah. the ones that were, and they weren't all of them except Joseph Smith, of course, because oh, he course, was guided by the salamander named Moroni Nephi. That's right. That's right. He had a special power that none of the others had to see. That's a double angel whammy. I'll take a double angel whammy. Yep. So Joseph basically takes this stone, this seer stone that he used to find treasure, to look for folk magic. He puts it in a hat. And this is now because the the German Thummim, what they call it, has been oh. taken back. He, he's got no other option now but to look in his hat. He doesn't use the plates. He doesn't use, uh, like we see in all the pictures, he ha puts his hat, his face in a hat, and looks at a stone which English words appear on. Where do we even, when did you even learn about this? I most was one years old in primary. Most of us learned about it on South Park. Remember the South Park episode where we're going, that's not right. What are they talking about? This is just anti-Mormonism. This yeah. is just anti-Mormonism that you're going, what? Hat in a rock? And we actually wanted to show that, but we, we'd we gotten a... Uh, we don't want a copyright we, strike. <laughs> remember when we sang the Book of Mormon musical a couple times ago? We got a copyright We got shut down. Well, I think they struck us just for our voices, but they said it was a copyright strike. <laughs> anyway, it was taken down regardless. So, so yeah, that we, happened. 
decided we maybe shouldn't use the the, the actual one because yeah. it's copyrighted. But I will say, if you have not seen, I don't know who in the universe hasn't, but if you haven't watched the South Park episode, dum 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 dum, dum please just go Google it. It's hilarious. It's and, and it's the that truth. Got, that got to more people in the world than anything Mormon missionaries have ever done from Joseph yeah. Smith's day on to right now. Yeah. Yeah. Why is it the first time we hear about this is on a cartoon show? <laughs> yeah. TV. Because God's got a sense of humor. Yeah, I mean, it's just mind-blowing. I mean, everyone knew that this, the church knew this. They, In fact, it was, it was clear up into the 1900s before they started changing the narrative and changed it away from that when people started going away from folk magic. But then when it came back, you know, they, they, there was so much evidence they had to acknowledge that this is, in fact, how he translated. But now there's a bunch of scholars trying to argue that he didn't because, obviously, folk magic and reading a, a you know, rock in a hat that you use to fraud, defraud people, um, not defraud, to fraud uh, people it, Close it is clearly, you know, problematic, to say the least. And the church knows it. Uh, yeah. it's, it's just absurd. So can't okay. argue with that. Okay. Okay. This one too, or you got yeah, it. Yeah, go ahead. I'll be happy to. Let's see. Hold on. I've got to get my urine thumb. <laughs> Apparently for convenience, Joseph often translated with the single seer stone rather than the two stones bound together to form the interpreters. Stop, stop right there. So, yeah, so no, God saved these all the way through the plates. He saved, he saved these breastplates. He served the, the spectacles. But ah, they weren't real convenient. So he just used the rock in the hat instead. Yeah. After all convenient. that. <laughs> after all that. Generation after generation. But it's yeah. a great it's, sacrifice. Yeah. Yeah, it sounds biblically magnificent, and that's part of the brainwash, I think. Yeah. Yep. So that's very interesting. These two instruments, the interpreters and the seer stone. Oh, here we go. We're yep. apparently interchangeable and worked in much the same way, such that in the course of time, Joseph Smith and his associates often used the term Urim and Thummim, to refer to the single stone as well as the interpreters. In ancient times, here we go, in ancient times, Israelite priests used the Urim and Thummim to assist in receiving divine communications, although commentators differ on the nature of the instrument. Several ancient sources state that the instrument involves stones that lit up or were divinely illuminated or illumined. Latter-day Saints later understood the term Urim and Thummim to refer exclusively to the interpreters. Joseph Smith and others, however, seem to have understood the term more as a descriptive category of instruments for obtaining divine revelations and less as the name of a specific instrument. Some people have balked at this claim of physical instruments used in the divine translation process. But such aids to facilitate the communication of God's power and inspiration are consistent with accounts in Scripture. Uh, if you count the 
pearly great price. In addition to the Urim and Thummim, the Bible, hey, the Bible mentions other physical instruments used to access God's power, the rod of Aaron, a brass serpent, holy anointing oils, the Ark of the Covenant, and even dirt from the ground mixed with saliva to heal the eyes of a blind man. They, they left out the sorting hat that Harry Potter uses <laughs> and uh, other divine instruments that we read about. Crystal ball. Crystal ball. All Crystal those divine ball. instruments. The Ouija yep. board. Yep. Uh, and, and the, the iPhone. The, the Ouija board <laughs> uh, thing. So, yeah. The, well, just because everyone else used these crazy instruments, it, it's okay that he used a rock and a hat. And, and it's, boy, the wording that they use there is just, very uh, clever, actually. Yeah, yeah it's it's it, it fooled us for a few decades, right? Absolutely. The Urim and Thummim were it was used to describe instruments that were. Right. It's a category. It's a category, but it's, it's a category. Urim and Thummim. It's two things which. We'll say it together. Bible, Urim and Thummim. <laughs> they were two stones. Urim and Thummim. <laughs> yeah. How did it now become Urim, Thummim, breastplate, stone? Whatever you want to make it is now a Urim and Thummim. Uh, well, and I'd like to bring up, so I, I just have to laugh because having raised my kid in the Harry Potter era in the heart of the heart of Utah County, there were so many other parents that would never let their children watch Harry Potter because of the occult, because of any of that, you know, and this was years ago, decades ago. And and now I just, I, I it's actually floors me. Landon and I and some others were at the Church History Museum a, a month ago, and we were talking to a nice guide there. And she was just laughing and smiling and telling us about the, the hat and the secret magic stone. And that, I mean, it was just the, the world of bizarro to me to think that, you know, and this woman was a little older than we were, that she somehow, because her church told it was okay, her it was okay, could could wrap her brain around that and, and talk about it so nonchalantly when I guarantee you probably 20 years before that would have horrified her. She probably knew nothing about it, but now as a guide for the museum, she was very happy to share what was perfectly normal for her, a stone, a magic stone and words and a hat. And it was actually really disturbing. Didn't you find Landon? It was oh, very disturbing. You know, I found it disturbing. You had yeah, Well, he got in a fight with her. We won't go into that. Yeah, we had to physically restrain oh, him. Oh, come on. It's a little that ranty. Makes, but, that makes yeah. this episode more interesting. You can't- All right. <laughs> so, this nice woman that we were talking to, um, she started talking about the golden plates and how much they weighed. And Landon was saying, well, wouldn't these be much heavier? You know, he was trying to ask some leading questions. And she's like, oh, no, they're an alloy. And Landon's like, I wasn't aware that there was the capability to make a metal alloy in that area. And she goes, oh, oh, the Nephites and the Lenotes were great metalsmiths. They had all kinds of artifacts, all kinds of alloy. And Landon's like, Where's that? You know, and I could see his eyes kind of getting a little more. And she goes, oh, in the east, in the east of the United States, there are museums everywhere with alloy, metal, Lamanite, Nephite artifacts. And then Landon, stone cold, goes, no, there aren't. And then I had to go get help with the rest of our party. I go, Landon's about to lose it. Come help him. Because <laughs> you know, he had just had too much. You just couldn't take it anymore. Literally, you could not take it. Uh, it was my new hero in the top hat right there. <laughs> Take a look. Landon Brophy, the man. He's so, damn right. Brother. Yeah, we got him out of there. We de-escalated and we got him out of there. That took gold from weighing 500 pounds to, you know, must. Yeah. They should use that in fighter jets now. An yeah. alloy that could lighten gold that much. But uh, 
Anyway. <laughs> and all those artifacts that are everywhere. You can just They're go everywhere. to museums and see them. They're everywhere. Very interesting. Okay, thank you for sharing that, Rebecca. Okay, let's yeah. go to the, the Brophy next effect one. says Doug Vincent. That's hilarious. Uh, yeah, let's go to the next uh, slide. All right. Uh-oh. Oh. Uh, Rebecca, you... <laughs> I can't even read my I, own meme I that I made up. So someone it. has to read it from God. It. Oh. Here we go. The stone in the hat then blocked the light. Geez, it seems pretty self-explanatory. <laughs> Come on, Perk. <laughs> yeah, everyone knows that you put the hat in the stone and yeah, then look at it. That's the how hat. you get yeah. interpretations. Uh, anyone should know this. I can't <laughs> believe Captain Kirk messed that up. No wonder the Klingons blew his ship up, man. I'm just saying. All right, let's go to the next one. Okay, let's talk about the sorcerer and the stone. Interestingly enough, Joseph Smith did not have one seer stone. He had five. He acquired the first one, which was- That one. means Brigham Young had 36 or 37, right? That's that's wives. He that's was always wives. ahead of Joseph. Oh, oh that's right. Always oh, ahead. had out to him and everything, so- but he had five. He acquired a white one. He had a green one that he acquired in eight. So he's acquiring these before he's ever had the the, the uh, first vision. The brown one, which is the one that's most associated with um, with this, he found in 1822. So this supposedly two years after he'd already had a first vision. Uh, he he actually found it while digging a well on Willard Chase's property, and. He asked Willard Chase if he could borrow it, and then he refused to give it back. So it's basically a stolen article. Stolen <laughs> the, stone. The stone. Uh, very, and once Willard Chase thought it actually had power, he wanted it back. You know, oh, wow, I want that stone. Um, but everybody had a seer stone. Joseph had a seer stone. Lucy had a smear, uh, seer stone. W.W. Phelps, Sally Chase, Lumen Walters, Hiram Page. It's like Oprah. You get a stone. You get a stone. Everybody gets a seer stone. That's uh, th these were just laying around everywhere. So evidently, all these sacred implements that they're talking about in the letter, you just can find anywhere, and anyone can have one. And you have a seer stone, and you can you can interpret. You can read things clearly. Well, I feel gypped. I, I know. You can have a seer stone too. In fact, Joseph Smith said every man should have their own seer stone. So. He, Not he, you, Rebecca. Patriarchy. No, I have one. Oh. I have one. I'm the matriarchy, and I have one. <laughs> and you know what it's telling me about you, Carrie? Hmm. I don't Ooh. know. <laughs> well, we've got to take a commercial break now, folks. I think it's saying Carrie is stoned. Yeah. <laughs> I, it, possibly. We don't know. We don't know. Oh, so, yeah. Sir stones were very common, and, and so these common implements are what we're using rather than the sacred instruments. Uh, and they weren't just for Mormons. No, they were for, yeah. No. Yeah. It, it you know, the power of God is not just for Mormons. That's a new doctrine. Well, that, that's uh, certainly true at this point. <laughs> okay, you want to go to the next, sure. next one? I'm just you trying to look at the time here to make sure we... Oh, uh, we're doing fine. We have to beat your old record of two hours and 99 minutes. No, we? no, no. Oh, we don't need to beat that. Uh, Carrie, is your eyes good enough to read that? That is. Oh, wow. sure. <laughs> get okay, your magnifying but, glass out, Carrie. Yeah, there you go. I'm going to get my seer stone out. Mine's a magnifying stone. The mechanics of translation. 
In the preface to the 1830 edition of the Book of Mormon, Joseph Smith wrote, I would inform you that I translated the book by the gift and power of God when pressed for specifics about the process of translation. Joseph repeated on several occasions that it had been done by the gift and power of God, and once added, it was not intended to tell the world all the particulars of the coming forth of the Book of Mormon. Nevertheless, the scribes and others who observed the translation left numerous accounts that give insight into the process. Some accounts indicate that Joseph studied the characters on the plates. Most of the accounts speak of Joseph's use of the Urim and Thummim, either the interpreters or the seer stone, and many accounts refer to his use of a single stone. According to these accounts, Joseph placed either the interpreters or the seer stone in a hat, pressed his face into the hat to block out extraneous light, and read aloud the English words that appeared on the instrument. The process described brings to mind a passage from the Book of Mormon that speaks of God preparing a stone which shall shine forth in darkness unto light. Uh, did did anyone think about this uh, Book of Mormon scripture when they heard about that? <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> All the time when I became a deacon. You, you used to look at the gold, yeah, the stone in that. Oh, yes, I remember the glowing stones uh, in the hat uh, in interpretation in the Book of Mormon, which, of course, is written about itself. So he's describing exactly. the very process that I was he's just going to say that. It's easy to write that in. There will be a prophet arisen, Joseph. Oh, how ironic. <laughs> yeah, with a stone that glows. Uh, of course, the person who believes in glowing stones is going to write about a glowing stone in his book. <laughs> That's interesting. Yeah. That guy has my name and he's got a rock like I do. Yeah. It, isn't it interesting sense. that we still have the seer stone? We have the brown seer yeah. stone. The church, I don't. The church does. Is it, uh, this I borrowed this uh, from the church. No, <laughs> you stole it just like Joseph Smith stole, stole it just it. like Joseph. But the yeah. church has the seer stone in their possession. The the church or someone probably had the hat in the possession. How come God didn't take the hat and the seer stone back? But he took the breastplate, the Sword of Laban, the Book of Mormon, the Leahona, all the other artifacts had to go back. But the artifacts that were contemporary to the day were just fine to be left alone, even though they were the primary tool that was used. This is the power that was used to translate. But it didn't have to go back to God, but the other that could have clearly proven a Book of Mormon or a divine origin, they all went back. Well, I can answer that question. I can answer that question because I have uh, family members who believe that those things that you just mentioned are in a vault in the church office building being guarded by two Lamanite warriors. <laughs> they are completely, no, don't laugh. They're serious. And no, I have I, conversations with them and I go, mm -hmm. that's what they think. They were not taken back. They're simply being guarded for a time when they're going to be needed again. Seeing, that's why we stop seeing stories about the three Nephites because two of them are in the vault guarding the Two good. of them are in the freaking vault. They don't have time to change your tire. One can't do it. Exactly. Again, more the, the, the gymnastics, how you can know these things and not go, what? <laughs> the hell? Finish what the is going on? Yeah, yeah. Okay, <laughs> let's go to... Uh, uh, 
so I'll read this. The scribes who assisted with the translation unquestionably believed that Joseph translated by divine power. Joseph's wife, Emma, explained that she frequently wrote day after day at a small table in their house in Harmony, Pennsylvania. She described Joseph sitting with his face buried in his hat with the stone in it and dictating hour after hour with not with with nothing between us. According to Emma, the plates often lay on the table without any attempt at concealment wrapped in a small linen tablecloth. Wouldn't, if they were wrapped in a small linen tablecloth, wouldn't that be an attempt to conceal? The That's the definition of a concealment. <laughs> there is no way. There is just no way. I don't care what book you quote to me. There is no way Emma would not have peaked unless she was in on it. Yeah, I... Yes. How, how do you, how do you not, how do you sit there day after day? And when he walks out to go the, the outhouse, you don't go. There is no way. Well, yeah. there was a threat though. There was a threat that you would die. Isn't that, am I correct in that? That there was a threat that you would die if you peaked out? Oh, Carrie's sure, like, I'm forget sure the threat. Something along that, well, Emma was always being threatened with destruction. Think yeah, about so that. So she was used to. <laughs> the end of her I mean, by the end of her life, think about this. By the end of her life, Joseph Smith, I, I mean, Emma Smith believed so much in what Joseph Smith had been doing that she, show, she sold a papyri that, Abraham himself had signed. Yep. She sold. She sold it. Yep. Yeah. Yep. So that tells you. Yeah. Yeah. Go. Go. The next thing. I think she said. I think she basically said on. enough of this, Huey. Uh, yeah. There it is. Yeah. Go ahead. Go ahead and uh, read that well, one. When asked if Joseph had dictated from the Bible or from a manuscript he had prepared earlier, Emma flatly denied those possibilities. He had neither manuscript nor book to read from. Emma told her son, Joseph Smith III, the Book of Mormon is of divine authenticity. I have not the slightest doubt of it. I am satisfied that no man could have dictated the writings of the manuscripts unless he was inspired. For when acting as his scribe, your father would dictate to me for hour after hour. And when returning after meals or after interruptions, he would at once begin where he had left off without either seeing the manuscript or having any portion of it read to him. We we all know that uh, that there that the quotations from the Bible in the Book of Mormon come from the King James version of the Bible, which wasn't written until which wasn't translated for thousand you know thousand fifteen hundred years after af, almost two thousand years after uh, they left uh, Jerusalem. Uh, so how are errors in the King James Bible translation? moved over into the Book of Mormon, especially if it's the most correct book, why wouldn't he just have, have gotten the correct interpretation and, and, and interpreted it correctly? That's the question. And I think we've all heard that question come up before. Why, right. why did that happen or why, how did that come in? I have the answer. All right. We're These are inspired mistakes, inspired errors. God yeah, makes who says their mistakes. Who says their mistakes? That is very interesting. Hmm. Yeah. They interesting. King James Bible, Bible got it right. It was wrong in the original, right? Uh, King James made the correction and, and that's how he saw it. So that that's, so it's funny when you read the apologetics on it, they start saying, 
Well, it's clear that when he started reading into that, he said, oh, this is already in the King James Bible. Everyone is already familiar with this passage. And so he went and wrote it. But she just said he didn't copy any of it from the Bible. Yeah. So you can't have it both ways. You can't put in the essay that he didn't copy from the Bible. And then in your apologetics say, oh, he recognized that from the Bible. So he just copied it from the Bible. And that's how it got in there. Besides, that's not translating an ancient text. There's no way the King James was ancient. That's the issue. Yeah. Oh, ab well, absolutely. And there's no reason if you're if you've got a stone there telling you that you would say, oh, that's the J King James version. I'm going to take my stone, put it away and go get the King James Bible when I can just look at my stone and it'll, it'll read it right off to me. And they even said in there that there was no copying from manuscript to manuscript. It was clear from their from the original publisher. And yet the apologetic answer is he copied it from the Bible. So there was copying from manuscript to manuscript. If you, you can't have both arguments, you, you have to take, you know, you have to stick with one of your arguments. You maintain faith in the holy covenant path. You can have it both ways. Okay. So Russell Nelson. Let's go to the next one. I think uh, we're getting close. Okay. Here we go. This is our favorite one. Uh, <laughs> this is how the words would appear. Um, they'd just appear on the rock and he'd read them. Of course, there was no punctuation, evidently. Uh, there is on that, Sear Stone. There is on that one. And of course, Joseph Smith, Ovaltine, a crummy commercial, son of a bitch. <laughs> so, uh, obviously, from Christmas Story, uh, uh, this comes from. So, Carrie, you want to read that one? Another scribe, Martin Harris, sat across the table from Joseph Smith and wrote down the words Joseph dictated. Harris later related that as Joseph used the seer and stone to translate, sentences appeared. Joseph read those sentences aloud, and after penning the words, Harris would say, written, an associate who interviewed Harris recorded him saying that Joseph possessed a seer stone by which he was enabled to translate as well as from the Urim and Thummim. And for convenience, he then used the seer stone. And God, of course, wasn't against that because he preserved the Urim and Thummim for generation after generation after generation after generation. And he already he, he knew he was going to take him back anyway. So forget all that noise, Joe. Just use the rock. If anything, God is a God of convenience. Uh, oh, there you go. Yeah. <laughs> He never requires anything, uh, you know, too difficult. It, it, whatever's easiest, just do that. <laughs> Fascinating. Yes, and, and Martin Harris, the deer whisper. We all know he had crazy uh, ideas as well. Um, oh yeah. So the principal scribe Oliver Cowdery testified under oath in 1831 that Joseph Smith found with the plates from which he translated his book, true transparent stones resembling glass set in silver bows that by looking through these, he was able to read in English the reformed Egyptian characters, which were engraven on the plates. I, if, if the, if the stones were taken away, if the, if the interpreters were taken away when Martin Harris lost them and they were never returned, I'm not sure how Oliver Cowdery saw these, but, uh, uh, that's maybe something to dig into, uh, cause I'm not sure. <laughs> Oliver Cowdery came after Martin Harris uh, and after the last 116 pages. 
In the fall of 1830, Cowdery visited Union Village, Ohio, and spoke about the translation of the Book of Mormon. Soon thereafter, a village resident reported that the translation was accomplished by means of two transparent stones in the form of spectacles through which the translator looked on the engraving. However, again, when Oliver Cowdery was doing this, he was supposedly pretty much using the stone in the hat, didn't have the spectacles. So the spectacles just become a problem all over the place. Uh, the timelines don't seem to match. Did he give them back? Who saw them? When did they see them? How did he get them back? Why are they look different? Some say you could take the stones out of the rims and put them in his hat and he'd look at them in his, those in his hat as opposed to his other seared stone. Uh, the stories are all over the place. And any way you slice it, it just looks steampunk. Have you seen those pictures? <laughs> yeah, that is steampunk. That is I think steampunk. that's what yeah. uh, Dr. Lundwall was asking for. Some yeah. steam, steampunk goggles, which I will do for him. Yep. Well, let's see the next one. Uh-oh. Oh! <laughs> wow! You want me to read this one? You, you, you can read them, it, yes. Gary. You have a fresh voice. <laughs> What the F is a Moroni? And how the hell did it get on my bridge? Number one? <laughs> oh, my. Which is the Urim and which is the Thummim? Hell if I know. <laughs> Nor does anyone else in the church seem to know. <laughs> okay, here's what we can do. We can say one trans... The other lates. There you go. There's lates. That's it. <laughs> okay, let's go to the next. Uh, I think we're yeah. So we're here's at the conclusion. Awesome. This is the conclusion of uh, of what the the gospel uh, topics essay says on this. It says Joseph Smith consistently testified that he translated the Book of Mormon by the gift and power of God. His scribes shared. That testimony, the angel who brought news of an ancient record on metal plates buried in a hillside and the divine instruments prepared especially for Joseph Smith to translate were all part of what Joseph and his scribes viewed as the miracle of translation. And it certainly was. When he sat down in 1832 to write his own history for the first time, he began by promising to include an account of his marvelous experience. The translation of the Book of Mormon was truly marvelous. The truth of the Book of Mormon and its divine source can be known today. God invites each of us to read the book, remember the mercies of the Lord, and ponder them in our hearts, and ask God, the Eternal Father, in the name of Christ, if these things are not true. God promises that if ye shall ask with a sincere heart, with real intent, having faith in Christ, he will manifest the truth of it unto you by the power of the Holy Ghost. So we go right back to the spiritual, not the historical, not the... You know, don't look at any of the, these other things. Look at, uh, read the book and fill it, and, and that'll tell you whether it's true or not. Uh, standard answer to every one of the end of their essays. Pray about it and feel good about it, and that's all the proof you need. And I'd like to say these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. It sounds just like a testimony me. <laughs> this is our testosterone money that there's something fishy with story <laughs> <laughs> oh man wow that's some great research you guys have done on this subject lots of interesting little problems and goo and kind of sticky mess here isn't it it's it's a mess anyone who can believe in a translation after knowing the facts behind uh the book and then 
again, watch Doc, watch, watch Dr. Lundwall's uh, episode. You'll just sit and go, what in the world? There, there is no way uh, that this could have happened uh, through any uh, magic. It couldn't even been written so that it could be translated in the first place. Yeah, exactly. Very interesting. Well, and, and next time uh, we're going to dive into the first vision accounts. So it's going to be even more entertaining. <laughs> there you go. Yeah. Yeah. Our next yeah, be good. vision, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah, it is. Yeah. That's, that's a very huge testimony builder. It, uh, it is. Yeah. I think. No, it's not. I was at a board party once and I just happened to mention to uh, a gentleman that was there. He said, oh, the first vision. And I said, which one? I said two words. That was it. I didn't see him again for a year or so because he was visiting and he'd left the church. He, and because of what I said, it sent him down the all I said is which one? I mean, this was before they were, you know, this decades ago. Yeah. But isn't that interesting? Which one? And it sent him down that path to research and discover. Yeah, it's like that one general authority. I can't remember now. I made a video on it a while ago on the BYP response where he said, or maybe it was that church historian where he said, you do realize that you you have to be very careful about what you say. You might be responsible for someone leaving the church. And I go, hell yeah, I'm not going to be careful with what I say. I'm going to be bold with what I say. And I dang sure better make sure someone checks it out. And if it doesn't jibe, they had better leave. That's, that's not making me feel guilty anymore. That's helping me say, yeah, progress. If we want the whole historic truth. If these guys wanted to solve their problem, especially with all this Book of Mormon stuff too, quit being so literal. You know, easier said than done, apparently. So easier yeah. said. And I think sometimes they move away from literal and then they have to circle back, you know, because kind you of the public opinion changes, you know, they try to go away. Hey, there was a hat, there was a rock. And now people are like, no way. So now they're returning to that. That did not happen. So kind of like polygamy and the denial of Joseph's polygamy, right? It moves. Okay, that happened. And then a lot of people know it never did. So it's very cyclical, I find. Yeah, that is fascinating. All right, you guys, is there anything else you want to add, Landon? Happy Pioneer Day. Happy oh yes oh. happy pioneer day that's tomorrow right tomorrow yep. it's tomorrow yeah tomorrow tomorrow we'll start the <laughs> celebration tomorrow with you oh. yeah it's gonna be fun i'm landon and i are going to the parade in salt lake city i've never ever been before um but we got some awesome seats and we're gonna actually go and watch the pioneers march by well at least those guys had a decent parade here, they here, had a good parade. here in Idaho, all we had was a horse with a stupid, you know, <laughs> two-wheel cart thing, and they called the horse a tapir and all that kind of stuff. Yeah, and somebody pointed out it is actually pie and beer day. That's more what the post-Mormons celebrate. But Landon right. and I are just going to the parade so we can go, that didn't happen. There was never right. a hand cart. That's incorrect. That person wasn't there. That's there where we're going. Where's Brigham Young still? Is it on board yeah. with a hand cart? <laughs> I would like to try a swig. <laughs> you need two bits, I'll give you two bits. All right. Well, that's awesome. Thank you, everyone, for showing up in the chat. It's been good to see. You. It looks like they were having fun in the chat tonight, didn't it? 
I uh, hope so. I miss about. being there. <laughs> so we are we are a little running over, but we're going to call it good for now. We appreciate all your support and love, and Mormonish and I, of course, will be coming back together very soon for more of these church essays, which we believe uh, actually help inform us as we include the rest of the story. Paul Harvey lives on, apparently. So we're going to head out of here. Thanks for showing up. Be good, do well, have fun, work hard, make lots of friends, don't stay up late. But if you do, have a pie and beer day. another episode of Mormonish. We really appreciate our listeners and would love to hear from you if you have a story you'd like to share. You can email us at mormonishpodcast at gmail.com. You can also find us on Facebook, Instagram, and on our website, mormonishpodcast.org. And don't forget to look for us on YouTube and like and subscribe. Keep joyful, everybody.